Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. It is great to welcome you and add that welcome that Tim's already given to you. And uh, we're really glad you're here. I just grabbed that lectern, if I may, and uh, otherwise I'll be holding that forever, and that's not good. Apologies for last week. I uh, was planning to be here, and I got up Saturday and felt a bit seedy. So I thought it would be better not to be here. And uh, so you got a, uh, a pretty ordinary video that was done Saturday afternoon. You might think that's a better version of myself anyway, but but uh, it was uh, best for me not to be here last week. So good to be here and good to welcome all the kids. And uh, if you're a parent here, don't worry a little bit about noise for kids. That won't worry me in the slightest. I think you know I've got 25 grandkids. I'm nervous when there's no noise. And uh, so don't worry if there's a little bit of noise of children this morning. We want to look at the... uh, the colours and layers of the cross. I mean, this graphic you see and uh, the cross you see is there deliberately because, you know, sometimes when we think about the cross, we think of the colour black. It's sin and it's death and it's defeated and we know that, but there's so many different layers of the cross and I want to look at those some of those this morning, so many different colours and we're going to do that as we share together today. So let me pray. Father, we would pray that by your spirit you would speak to us today and we would hear from you, your word and your spirit speaking deep in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We are leading up today to, today is focusing on the crucifixion, next Sunday is focusing on the resurrection. Of course, together they are Easter. They are the central portion if you like, of the Christian celebration. They are worth celebrating. And sometimes we come to, you know, the cross and it's a sort of morose, it's a little um, dark and a little quiet. And I get that because it's a significant thing, but there's much more to the cross than we think. And we're going to plummet some of that this morning. We're going to look at some of those layers, like peeling away some of the aspects of the cross so that we can grasp what that's about. Three aspects, three layers I want to focus on this morning. And the first one is the obvious one. It's the one that Tim talked about in in communion. It's the one we sang about a little earlier. It's the forgiveness of sin. And that's a really important part of the cross. It's the the foundational, it's it's the fundamental part of what it means to come to the cross. Um, but very often it's the only part we see. It's the only part we focus on. Like that's, that's it. And it's not that at all, but it certainly is a central part of the gospel story. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Through him, that is Jesus, we have redemption or we are bought back. We've all lived our own way and we've done our own thing, but we've been bought back in this thing called redemption by the blood of Christ. That's important. To the Corinthian church, uh, Paul says a similar thing, talks about a, an amazing um, exchange. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was, count, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. That is really good news. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this is the most radical thing you'll read. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an extraordinary exchange that happens. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we who had all sorts of sin can become the righteousness of God. That's an extraordinary story. That's the, the story. That's the central part of this forgiveness of sin that we have. And there's two concepts here that we need to get a hold of. And, and, and sin is not a very popular thing. We don't talk a lot about it. We Sometimes you get sort of put off if you even say the word, that three-letter word, sin. It's not a very popular thing, but it comes from the word hamartia. And the Greek word hamartia just simply means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It means you're aiming at something. You're heading towards a bullseye, but you miss it. You don't get it. You hit around about it or you miss the target completely. But that's what it means. It's hamartia. That's what it means. It's a mark or a standard. And in this case, with God's case, the standard is God's holiness. There's a standard that's there, God's holiness, and we miss it. We miss it. We don't aim, we don't aim very well. We don't get very well. The standard is the, you know, the reflect Jesus, but we don't reflect Jesus like we should. And everyone misses the mark. Everyone. Everyone, some people might go a little closer than others, we might think, but everybody misses the mark. Everyone does that. And the problem with sin is two things. One, we get attached to it. If we're really honest, sin can be nice. If we're really honest about it, it can be pleasurable, it can be attractive. It can be nice. That's the dilemma with it. It's not like it's something horrible that we get caught up in. We, we actually enjoy it. That's one of the problems with this thing called hamartia. It appeals to our broken nature. The second thing about sin we've got to keep in mind is that we all have a hierarchy of sin. We all have a hierarchy of which sin or sins are worse than others. And I, I get in consequence they are, but in reality... In essence, it's all missing the mark. In essence, it's all missing the mark. We, you tell a lie, you, you miss the mark. You steal something from the local shop, you miss the mark. You abuse somebody badly, you miss the mark. It's all missing the mark. It's all that same place. The, 
the consequence may not be the same, and that's where we get our hierarchy from, the, the consequence of some, some acts are higher than others or worse than others. But the actual act, it all comes from the same thing. It all comes from missing the mark. That's where it comes from. And uh, the cross deals with the missing the mark. The cross deals with us missing, going off center, doing our own thing. Um, the cross deals with sin. There's still consequences we have to live out and put up with, etc. but the cross deals with that. The other word that is important is an old English word called atonement or atonement, we call it. In the 1500s, in the early 1500s, the word one, the word one was a verb, not a noun. It was a verb. It, it meant to unite. To one someone was to unite with someone. That's what that word meant. It meant to, to be at one. Um, and the word meant or the suffix meant at the end just meant the process of getting from somewhere to somewhere else. So at one minute, which wasn't a Christian word to start with, it just meant the process of getting at one with something or at one with someone. That's what it meant in the early 1500s. And a few decades later, theologians picked up that word and used the word atonement or atonement to refer to God. How do we get at one with God? Well, it's the process of becoming one with God. That's what atonement means. But it wasn't originally a theological word, but theologians picked it up in the 1500s and used it for that. And that's how it came to be. And the, gear, the thing we need to understand is we, at, right at the beginning of creation, we were all at one with God. You know, humanity was at one with God at the beginning. Adam and Eve were at one with God, but that oneness got broken. That oneness got broken, the image was broken, and God had to deal with that and needed a process to deal with that becoming one. And there's a whole bunch of processes that God put in place of cleansing and purification and offerings and sacrifices and even had a special day of atonement where that could happen and a priest could do it on your behalf and you could be in the process now of being at one with God for another year. That was the whole process of the day of atonement. It's not wasn't every year but you had to be at one this year and made it one again next year and at one again the year after. And the process of at one was an annual thing. That was what happened in that whole process. And Jesus came along and paid that price and there was no need for any other day of at one It's happened. It happened on the cross at Calvary. That was your at one the process of coming back to God, the process of coming near to God, had been determined at that place, once and for all. It's the first layer, if you like, of the cross. It's the first layer of what that meant, the forgiveness of sins. You never forget that. That's what this, the colour of forgiveness, if you like, and the layer of forgiveness is really important and really crucial. The second layer I want us to focus on today is a layer called the newness of life, which comes with a new covenant. Comes with a new covenant. 
going to read to you some scriptures from, from Matthew chapter 27. And when Je- this is the actual moment of Jesus' death. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Wow. You see, you don't need all that to happen for your sins to be forgiven. Jesus shedding blood on the cross was sufficient for that. There's something else happening here. There's something bigger than that. There's another layer And that layer is a new covenant, a new way of operating, a new way of agreement with God now that you have at the cross. Let me give you a definition. If you were to define a contract, a contract is an agreement between two parties where both parties determine the terms of the agreement. It's an agreement between two parties where both parties determine the terms of the agreement. So if you buy a house, you work out a price and you go back and forwards and you negotiate and you negotiate the terms and eventually two people sign a contract and both people have agreed to the price and the the conditions of that house. That's a contract. A covenant is different. A covenant is an agreement between two parties where one party determines the terms of the agreement. So it's an agreement between two parties, but one, per- one party has determined the terms of the agreement, and the other party just doesn't. And we have a covenant with God because it's not as if we negotiate with God, you, you do this, we'll do that, God, if you do that to me, I'll do this to you. No, it's an agreement with God, but God determines. God determines the, the terms and conditions of that agreement, and we live by those terms and conditions. And that, what happened at, at, at that oneness, at that, at that time when Jesus breathed his last, a new covenant, a new terms of agreement happened at that moment. When he, when he breathed his last, there was a new covenant happened there and then. A new covenant with new terms and new life for you and for me. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, that's the old covenant, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? How much more does what God did for us in the cross in Jesus? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, 
It is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. That's why the death of Jesus is so important because a new covenant, like a will, cannot come into place until someone dies. Until that happens, you're still living in an old covenant. Which, might, which is why it made it very difficult for Jesus because he lived, as he lived on this earth, he lived in the time of an old covenant because he hadn't died yet, but he was ushering in the terms of a new covenant which made it very difficult for him. He lived under one covenant, ushering in a new covenant that made him very unpopular with the people who loved the old covenant. But he ushered in a new covenant that came into place the moment he breathed his last. The moment he breathed that his spirit left him, the scriptures say, that very moment, the curtain of the temple was torn, rocks split, earthquakes happened, and God was announcing a new set of agreements, a new set of rules for you and for I. It was no longer religious activities that achieved atonement. It was no longer that that came for redemption. It was now grace. We sang about it before. The unmerited, unearned, unachievable for us, but not for God. It was grace. It was this unearned arrangement that God decided that for you I am going to set new Covenant rules, I determine the terms and agreements, and it's about grace. You can earn nothing. You can't do it. It's, it's how I say it. Grace, that unmerited, unearned love and mercy of God. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Otherwise, it's not grace. Otherwise, it's earned. Otherwise, you've, you've achieved it somehow. And that's not what it, That's why the cross changes everything, because you have a new set of arrangements now that are determined by God for you. It's no longer I have to. It's now I get to. Because of God's grace, I get to. Not I have to do things to get God's grace or favor. I have it. He's given it to me. That's what's important. And it's how, it's how Paul opens up every one of his letters when he talks to people. It's not just a greeting to the Roman church, grace to you. To the Corinthian church, grace to you. To the Philippian church, grace to you. To the Thessalonian church, grace to you. To the Colossian church, grace to you. It's grace all the time that Paul is talking about. It's a it's a new way to live. It's not about religious duty. It's not about, you know, if I just am good enough here or I do this, God will love me. No, no, no. It's about his grace. That's what happened in this new, pardon me, this new covenant that God had set up. It's a new way to live. You can give up on religious duty being the way to get to God because God has decided there's a new arrangement now. It's called his grace and he's chosen it. And that new covenant came into being the very moment he died on that cross. So it's a second layer. The layer, firstly, is the forgiveness of sin. But the second layer is this, this new agreement. There's this new covenant 
There's this new set of terms and conditions, if you like, that God has set that you can do nothing to earn, that you can do nothing to uh, deserve. God has given them to you. Grace to you. Grace to you. Grace to you. That's how it happens, freedom and grace. And then there's a third um, element that I want to talk about here in terms of the cross. And it's the constant presence of God now. The constant presence of God. And if you like, it's a new temple. I want to explain that. It's a new temple that happens now. Um, we're going to lead. This week is the, is the time when we recognize the lead up from the, you know, the crucifixion leading into Jerusalem, the crucifixion, and then to the resurrection. And that all is about a new temple happening. And we read these words in John's Gospel. It was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Why are you doing all this? Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So if I were to say to you, what, when you think of the word temple, what do you think of? I mean, whether it's a, any whatever sort of you know, religion it is, temple, not far from where I live um, on Rochdale South, there's a huge, huge Buddhist temple. Irrespective of what religion, when you think of temple, what do you think? You think of it's a place where devotees go for instruction. You think it's a place where... Um, religious duties are carried out. It's a place where offerings and sacrifices are made. That's what we think of when we think of a temple. But a temple, in biblical terms, is not just that. A temple is a meeting place between God and man. It's a meeting place between God and earth. That's what a temple is. Really is that specific. It's a place of God's presence on earth. That's what a temple was meant to do. The religious activities, the instructions, all of those things were secondary, but it was a place. In fact, when you see now um, cathedrals, if you like, they are lofty normally with high steeples and spires to reflect God coming to earth. That's why they make them that way. It's part of that. It's, it's to bring together, if you like, those two crucial words, transcendence and imminence, where the transcendent God, who is beyond what we can imagine, also becomes the imminent God who's with us. That's the whole thing about meeting. The Celtic Christians 
had a term called thin places, and thin places were a place, usually a physical place, usually on the side of a mountain somewhere or some sort of remote place where they felt the, the, the closeness of God transcendent and the closeness of God imminent were, were there. There's a thin place between the God who can't be explained and the God who's with us. That's how the Celtic Christians talked about that. And so, but a, a temple is the place of a meeting place between God and man. That's what it is. In fact, with that definition, if you would see that the very first temple you see in the scriptures is the Garden of Eden. Not a physical building, but it's the meeting place of God and man. And then it got mucked up, got messed up. And, and man had to leave because of sin, and then eventually God chose a nation, and that nation developed a temple, firstly a mobile temple called a tabernacle, where there was a place in that tabernacle for the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where God's presence was, and that went everywhere. And when they went through the wilderness for that 40 years, they'd spend a few days in a place and then they'd fold up all their tents and then fold up the big tent and take the presence of God before them and start another place and settle down for another place in that wilderness. And it became, that was God's, that was, that was the meeting place of God and man and God and earth. And eventually when they got in the promised land, a, a man called Solomon came along and built a permanent temple which had a holy of holies in it, which was the permanent place of the presence of God, where only a high priest could go once a year and earn your forgiveness. And then eventually that got wrecked because Israel fell into its own disobedience and was sent into exile and the temple was destroyed. And while they were in the destroy in the exile place, the prophet said, there's going to be a new temple. But it wasn't a building. It was a person. And Jesus came along as a new temple. That's why he says, destroy this temple and I'll build another one in three days. And they say, hang on, it took 46 years to build this temple. But he's not talking about that. Because Jesus now becomes the place of meeting between heaven and earth. He becomes that place. He becomes the place, the meeting place between heaven and earth. In fact, you read in John's gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and the word is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. When he's on the cross, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. So this promise that Jesus was going to come as a new temple, right, right from the Old Testament, and now Jesus is going to do it, not the way people have thought. They didn't realise this was the new temple that Jesus was the new meeting place between heaven and earth, that Jesus was the Emmanuel that we know of. This is a new temple, the constant presence of God still with people, the transcendent and the imminent. And here's what happens when you place your trust 
in Jesus. See, this is where it gets very personal for us. When you place your trust in Jesus, something amazing happens. The Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. He comes to dwell in us. And then the amazing thing is now the Scriptures say, you are the temple. You're the temple. You are the meeting place between God and man. You read to you what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, the first letter. The second one, he says this. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them. I'll be their God and they will be my people. And now the truth is you are the temple of God. And we don't need a, a, a big temple anymore. We don't need that because you and I, as people who've come to faith in Jesus and received his spirit, you and I are the temple of his spirit. We are the one now who carry the presence of God with us. It's really quite extraordinary that God would allow that to happen. We are not temples of religious duty. That's not our job. We're not temples of dutiful, uh, we just become dutiful, moralistic people. That's not our job. We carry the presence of the living God with us wherever we go. That's the role of the temple. And you and I are temples of the Spirit who dwells within us. You carry the presence of God wherever you go. You are the place where God meets earth. It's an extraordinary thought. Extraordinary thought. That's you and that's me. And our role is to bring heaven to earth and carry the presence of God to the people with whom we come in contact. You see, the cross is something, it has layers, it has colours beyond what we can imagine. It's not just the forgiveness of sin, although that would be enough. But it also sparks a new relationship for you and me. Where there's new terms and conditions now, and God's determined them, and it's grace. It's grace, grace alone. Not grace plus, not Jesus plus. It's grace alone. And not only that, but the temple that was so important in the first covenant, the temple that was so crucial, has been fulfilled in Jesus. And now he goes and sits at the far hand, right hand of the Father, is being fulfilled in you and me. God has chosen to presence himself in us. And we carry the presence of God in the world in which we live. You see, the cross has got colours beyond what we can imagine. Easter is worth celebrating far than we can ever think. It's not just, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's Palm Sunday, it's the resurrection, come, it's the crucifixion coming up, we better celebrate forgiveness of sins, of course, but it's far bigger than that. It's far bigger than that. We'll learn just how big it is next week when it comes to the resurrection. What does that really mean for us? presence of God for us. But they're, the, they're, the, they're the, the layers for us and the colours. You have forgiveness of sin. You have 
the grace of God as your determining factor in your life and you carry the presence of God in his spirit with you wherever you go as a follower of Jesus. And I want to say this to you. If, you, if this is an Easter where you haven't come to discover those things yet, this is the best time to do it. This is the best time to discover the forgiveness of sin, the grace of God, and the presence of his spirit in your life and my life that will change us forever. It will change us forever. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you because of who you are. We thank you for the cross, not that it's just some sort of symbol of of death being defeated, sin being defeated. It is all of that, but it's much more, God. You have forgiven our sin. You have brought us new life, new hope. You have built new terms and conditions of grace. And God, you have called us to be the carriers of the presence of God in the world in which we live. Father, we're thankful for that. We're grateful for that. May we celebrate this Easter like we've never celebrated before because of what it means for us. In Jesus' name, amen.